The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. We, some of you may not know, have a resident poet in our congregation, Robert Lovett Smith. He publishes a sonnet a day on Facebook, has for a couple years now. And one day, not so long ago, it was this one. The loneliest house on earth. On an especially rainy day, I happen upon an online article about a tiny hut, Buffa di Perero, 900 feet up on the side of a sheer cliff at a remote location in the Italian Alps. It's said to have been built by soldiers seeking shelter during a seemingly endless campaign in the Great War and is really only visible from the air. Even then, it's difficult to spot in photos being essentially the same arid brown as the surrounding rock. Brochures call it the loneliest house on earth. And while I concede that it may be so, as the winter wind rattles the windows of this tiny apartment at sea level, where I've been virtually combined, confined for what is now more than five years, I am forcibly reminded that loneliness, ever ubiquitous, can find us anywhere. Of course, I had to look up the loneliest house on earth after reading this sonnet. It's built, as Bob describes, into the side of a gray mountain called Monte Cristallo in the Dolomites, a steep drop below but without facing brick walls, a slanted roof, framed windows, and a couple of chairs just outside on the tiny deck, I guess you'd call it. Let me share a few photos if we can get our camera. Can you see this? Should I put it down in the corner, given our... So this is the mountain shot. This is a close-up. And if you wonder what it looks like from perched on its front stairs, so to speak, I'll put the copies out at coffee hour. It's a great lookout, a protected hideout. You can see why soldiers who were mad enough to dream it up would build it, lowering bricks as they must have had to from the mountain's summit. Having brought those bricks with them there at great effort, how quiet it looks though. With all the blessings, and I suppose all the challenges of being remote. No street noise, no street fares, 
No Jehovah's Witnesses asking if you're saved, and who knows if we are anyway. Just that view, that expanse, and the whistling wind. For years, my screensaver was one of the 24 Eastern Orthodox monasteries built in Meteora in Greece. It was this one, Holy Trinity Monastery. Perched as it is atop a pillar of stone 1,300 feet off the ground. Maybe it's not fair to use these as your vintage, especially the last one, as your vision for monastic life. But even so, even not so grand, monastic life has for a while had a special lurking place in my heart. Periodically, this shadowed figure comes out from behind the stone arches of a cloister in my mind, robed, and bends her finger in that gesture that says, come here, come on. The truth is, I love this world, and pretty frequently I love the idea of escaping from it, too. I love people, and I adore some good quiet. And I have this curiosity about what the hermetic life would look like. So in January, when I was looking for a fun book to read, I saw this title, The Stranger in the Woods, The Extraordinary Story of the Last True Hermit by Michael Finkel. I leapt at the chance. I mean, it's sabbatical and I can read about a hermit. This is perfect. Have any of you read this book? Well, it turned out a little different than I imagined when I ordered it. I imagined it was about some monk, the last one maybe, living in Holy Trinity Monastery or one of the other meteoras, maybe one that only had room for one person. It turns out it was about someone named Christopher Knight. Does that name ring a bell? Hmm. He was a man who at age 20 in 1986, with no real planning, went out into the woods of rural Maine and stayed for 27 years. When Knight was discovered in 2013 and the news hit the press, writer Michael Finkel was intrigued and reached out to Knight, even visited him uninvited a couple of times and pieced together the man's story and a little of the why behind it all. The young Knight was raised in a fairly normal family of self-sufficient Maine folks, well-schooled in how to use his hands and fix and make things, which would prove useful. Even so, though, Knight himself couldn't even really explain why one day he drove deep into the Maine woods on ever more remote and dirt byways until finally the car ran out of gas and Knight took out his backpack and stepped into the woods. In the beginning, he camped in various locations, but at some point he found this thick wooded area surrounded by enormous boulders, almost impossible to see or access from the surrounding trails, and he built a camp and a life there. In all his years there, he never lit a fire, no matter how cold it got, lest he draw attention to himself. He tried to make no noise, so there was no singing at this campsite. 
He survived taking what he needed <clears throat> from a set of nearby cabins and a retreat center, places that were often abandoned on weekends and through entire late fall, winter, and early spring seasons. Knight felt guilty about stealing, and he tried to be respectful of what he took, never taking people's jewelry or valuables or anything other than what he needed, food, tools, tarps, a generator one time, fuel, but he did steal. And ultimately, it was the more sophisticated monitoring systems that people installed, one of which alerted local officials of a nearby break-in, and the local official who was fed up and frustrated by decades of and hundreds of break-ins, who was Knight's undoing. Finkel meets Knight at this moment. Knight arrested for stealing in jail, and then visits him later when Knight is on monitored release at home, living with his aged mother. If it weren't for this arrest, it's not even clear that Knight would ever have emerged from the woods. So much of this story is interesting and intriguing because of how bizarre and astounding it was and is. The endurance alone, including long, bitter, main winter seasons with Knight losing weight each winter before spring hits, and he reports a couple of nights in which he teeters each year in storms and moments of extreme temperatures on something that puts him at the edge of losing his life and emerges each year amazed when he has made it through again. So why? Why does this man stay in this campsite, a man with family and connections, intelligence and skills? Why? What calls him here into the woods? I suppose it's what other hermits and lovers of solitude through the ages have sought and found in similar places. Among the things Knight describes is how he comes into relationship to the world around him differently, how he knows it intimately, but more so becomes a part of it, how his boundaries fall away like so many other describe, others describe mystics and forest dwellers of other religious ilk and their secular equivalents. Identity isn't about a person in a mirror anymore. In fact, in all his years, Knight never steals a mirror when he goes into a home. Though he keeps his beard trimmed neatly in the woods without it. Life and identity is more than self-reference for him. It's about the presence to the seasons and the migration of birds and the rolling blazes of flowers and the smell of earth freezing and thawing and the entirety and the richness of the world around him that he is interconnected with. And there is a fullness in this life. I was never lonely, Knight writes. Once you taste solitude, you don't grasp the idea of being alone, he says. 
Thomas Merton, the monk and mystic, once wrote that the true solitary does not seek himself, he loses himself. This loss of self was precisely what Knight experienced in the forest, Finkel says. And also, it seems, the finding of this much more expansive self. The lives and teachings of hermits and monks date way back in time. The Tao Te Ching, written in China somewhere between the 6th and 5th centuries before the Common Era, was, according to one piece of lore, written by, it's attributed to the master Lao Tzu, but there's a piece of lore which says that the teacher wrote it and then disappeared into the woods forever, into the wilderness. I didn't know that about this text, that it's often sought out as a guide by hermits. It does, though, teach central to the words, to the ideas in it, this idea of Wu Wei, which some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with, this, this idea which literally translates closest to this idea of action, non-action, this thing that's hard to define, but but can look like the boy who spontaneously was moved to chase and dance with the bee, the fly, in the story today. Can look and feel like a merging and a flow, be like the grass that bends with the breeze, the text says. The text describes so much that comes out of solitude that Knight also describes and lives. This connection with something deep that changes you and your relationship and movement in and with the world. By his own admission, Knight didn't speak a word in 27 years. In those 27 years, Finkel explores at one point that it's possible that Knight was on the autism spectrum. Finkel does talk about how overwhelming a lot of sensory input is for him. And Finkel names how biologists have also found that our desire to be alone may in fact be genetic. Low levels of the hormone um, oxytocin, that bonding hormone that's most frequently talked about between um, mothers and their babies, and high amounts of the hormone vasopressin, which can suppress our need for affection, may in fact result in some of us needing fewer interpersonal relationships. Knight could have been affected by either of these biological realities. But maybe the question is, do we need to describe a way or pathologize even choices like nights to court deep solitude and silence. There is so much also that you might say is wired in us to love silence. And nature, the biophilia that's being studied now, did you know that when we're silent, not even reading, not silent reading, truly silent, that the outer layer of our brain, the cerebral cortex that processes sound and language, finally, it turns out, gets to rest 
And when that happens, you and I, studies show we get access to deeper parts of our brain to what's called the subcortical zones. People who lead busy lives, noisy lives, Finkel writes, are rarely granted access to those areas. Silence, then, may actually be not the opposite of sound, but another world entirely in our experience, a deeper level of thought, a journey, he says, to the bedrock of life itself. Similarly, many studies show how noise and distraction are literally toxic to our well-being. Sound waves that move through the air cause the tiny bones in the middle ear to vibrate, which translates them into electrical signals that travel the nervous system into the auditory cortex of the brain so that even asleep, our body has to respond to noise is kept thrumming and vigilant at some level. City dwellers apparently live with elevated levels of stress hormones just from the sounds that we have consciously become accustomed to hearing, but our bodies haven't. The word noise, Finkel points out, is derived from the Latin word Nausea. Silence, then, real silence, freedom from input and distraction, is this doorway to things like a deeper kind of rest, a brain healing, maybe, another way of experiencing life. Christopher Knight was happy and grounded reading his stolen cache of books and magazines by twilight on his camp chair, brain both quiet and alive. But in jail, he is fast undone. His facial hair grows long. He can't be moved to clip it and tend to it. The constant noise and disruption unmoors him. I suspect, he writes back to Finkel, more damage has been done to my sanity in jail in months than years, decades in the woods. Eventually, he can no longer even write back. I miss the woods, he says. I did find a place where I was content. Contentedness is not a gift to be undersold. So I sit after reading the book about this eccentric man and life, wondering who is maladjusted <laughs> and who has found a way to live well, deeply. The answer I suspect is a both and, for me at least. The truth is, I don't know about you, but I don't think I ever want to be wholly alone all the time or bound to vows of silence. I don't think I could keep them. But I read once something that has repeatedly been useful to me as a framework. It was the idea that some things in life are problems to be solved, but some things are dilemmas to be managed. 
And it strikes me that this balance between a love of busyness and silence, of being in the world and withdrawn from it, that this is one of those dilemmas to be managed in the spiritual life. All of us having to find our place of comfort in that mix. But that we do so knowing and be re being reminded, even by night's extreme choice, like all of those hermits of old, that if we want the healthy falling away of boundaries that makes us bigger than just this entity, but connected to everything, and that unleashing of that part of our mind that is, well, that makes its appearance in the clearings we allow it to play and to synthesize and to create in the way it only will or most beautifully will in those spacious places we can create for it. If we want our brains to rest, we need to find a little more of what Christopher Knight found. As Bob's poem at the beginning about that loneliest house on earth pointed out, loneliness can visit us in the brick house built on the side of those gray dolomite mountains or in our apartment, which is to say that solitude and silence can visit us in all those same places too. Hermits can reside in plain sight in each of us. In fact, you might be happy to know that the modern hermit movement has resources available, some of which can be found on the website hermitary.com, though Finkel joked that no more than one or two people are ever on it at a time. We make our retreats where we can but we make them. Henry David Thoreau, who retreated to his cabin in Walden Pond for two years, two months, and two days, said, not till we have lost the world do we begin to find ourselves. Thoreau, said Christopher Knight, offering his appraisal of the great transcendentalist, Thoreau was a dilettante. May each of us find places and times and ways to be anchored into the deepest parts within us, knowing that they are fed as they are by silence and solitude and retreat. So blessings, my urban and live stream hermits. Blessings in your journeys inward, deeper, to the place that throws our sense of ourselves wide open and grounds us to the most beautiful and life-giving of energies. Amen. I've been public speaking for a while and I'm nervous still. What the heck, why does that happen? Um, so my name is Gregory. 
and I love this church. And I have five minutes right now, look, I'm shaking. I have five minutes right now to share with you why this liberal faith community deserves your pledge. I'll start off by saying I'm a queer misfit who had the pleasure of making this gorgeous hat with my partner, Adrian, last night, just for this special moment. As I was sitting there, though, and rereading my notes and fixing them, I guess, I was thinking about how in so many other places it's now illegal to be a drag queen in public and to think that I could wear this hat and had five people already come up to me and say, fabulous. I'm a church boy that loves everything about our Sunday gathering. Uh, at the end of last service, when the organ played the way it was, I was in tears. I value the multi-generational nature of this community and the fierce leaders uh, willing to bring us youngins along, Dolores, Betsy, and our ministry team. And I love this, I never finished it. It just says, ooh la la, we have a great ministry team. <laughs> I'm a former Baptist pastor and I was pushed out because of my leftist politics. But every Unitarian Universalist welcomed me and they, opened me, they, they welcomed me with open arms. And they helped me see that they've been up to the same work that I was doing for many more years. I was raised by a single mom. I had two sisters and was radicalized through feminism in college. After going to evangelical churches that hated women, I thank the goddess I found a church led, co-led by two very powerful women. Dolores, I've mentioned, and Betsy are two other fierce, powerful women that have taught me so much about what it means to do intergenerational work as we try to change this world and make it a more beautiful place. At work, I'm an eco-activist. I work for California Interfaith Power and Light, and it's so funny because when I met Betsy, uh, and I was telling her about my job, she goes, well, you know, I'm so sick of just sending postcards to my, my representatives. I want to get in the streets. <laughs> Heck yeah! <laughs> I'm obsessed with our church's history, especially Thomas Starr King. I love being part of a community that has been fighting for a better world for a long, long time. It's our job to keep fighting. And with your pledge, we can do just that. So please commit to pledging to this community so we can keep making it a better world. Thank you.